I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a television presenter, an athlete who held over 30 world records. Tani Gray-Thompson was born with spina bifida and went on to become one of Britain's greatest ever Paralympians, winning 16 medals, including 11 golds, to winning six London marathons. Her first Paralympics was in Seoul in 1988, her last in Athens in 2004. And since retiring from competitive sports, she's become a television presenter and a crossbench peer. It's an extraordinary achievement, but she finds it insulting when people call her inspiring. I don't think I've ever really had adversity in my life, she once told us. The biggest adversity I face is people's attitudes. It's people assuming that I can't do things because I'm a wheelchair user. Tony Gray-Thompson, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. And we're in the House of Lords with you here now with your red and white badge. But maybe you don't think you do have an imperfect past. No, I don't think I do. Um, So I was aware of discrimination growing up. And I think I was five when the first person stopped me in the street and asked me why my parents hadn't aborted me. Um, And so people are really shocked by that. But I remember having this conversation with my mum about it and explaining it. And um, at five, she talked to you about it. Yeah. And and she'd also been quite open. She'd said that, you know, potentially if it had been diagnosed in the early stages of pregnancy, she might have terminated the pregnancy. And again, people get really upset by that. But she never said, having had you, I wish I'd terminated the pregnancy. You know, we, we had a really open discussion about disability and attitudes and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a really weird one because my parents protected me from a lot of the discrimination that I experienced. So I grew up being aware of it, but they also really helped me get the skills at quite a young age to deal with it. Now, I've not always dealt with it brilliantly, but their background and their support meant I was fairly well equipped to deal with it. But you've actually overcome so much physically as well as emotionally. But So why don't you like the idea that you've overcome adversity? I think it's so interesting and actually rather inspiring. Because I can't walk. I mean, it just doesn't... I mean, if there's a massive set of stairs and I want to go up them and there's no lift, that's the pain in the neck. But, you know, walking, I don't think, would give me anything that I don't already have in my life. But that's also, again, because, you know, we... We didn't have the most accessible house, but my parents were able to, to to make it accessible over a period of time. Actually, not early on, because my dad didn't want to make it the only place I could ever live. Um, so it, it's kind of just different people's perceptions. So, yeah, there are lots of microaggressions and lots of kind of daily things which are 
a complete pain in the ass, you know, when people say people like you can't do this or, you know, some people's attitudes. But I think my my access to, you know, education and, and my parents' support just got me through with it. And you said about the inspirational bits, really quick. Yes, as an athlete, I hope I've inspired people. But getting out of bed in the morning and just being a disabled person, I don't think is terribly inspirational. Mm. So there's it's, it's really difficult because there's different parts of it, you know. So, you know, if... I have had people say to me, oh, you're so inspirational. What, 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 what? And they go, oh, just because what? Because I'm, I'm dressed. <laughs> right. You know, And but but then there's other disabled people who actually getting out of bed in the morning and getting out and getting dressed is incredibly difficult and incredibly mm. challenging. And, and it might be for me in about 30 years' time, but, but right now it's not. So it's quite cool to be called inspiring for something I've done in politics or something I did in sport, yeah. but not for the other bits of my life. You talked once about there being sort of inspiration porn that mm. people, what did you mean by that? So that comes back to um, people being inspirational purely because of their disability, where that actually it's, you know, it's like, oh, you're so inspirational. And it, it kind of feeds into people's negative stereotypes that being disabled, being a wheelchair user, being visually impaired, whatever it is, is the worst thing that could ever, ever happen in someone's life. And I had it recently where somebody said to me, um, oh, I couldn't bear to be incontinent. I'd probably want to end my life. And it's like, well, I technically am. I catheterized if I didn't. I would wet myself. So, you know, it, it's not, I don't ever go, oh, it's it's just wonderful. I'm so lucky I have to catheterize. But the, the other option is really bad. So mm. it's like, I think I was brought up to make the most of opportunities and look at, try and look at the positives and try and do the things that you can. But But you can only do that if you've got the right people and the right things around you. And you've got the right support network to to be able to do it. And there's loads of people I see that just don't have that. So, you know, to some people sees the days complete nonsense because they don't have the chance to do that. Yeah. We wanted to take you back to your childhood. You were born in 1969 and your father was an architect. And your mother sounds, actually, she sounds very inspirational and very tough but kind. What was it like? What was your first memory? My first memory is my watching Welsh rugby. And uh, I was about three and having to wear a bobble hat and scarf. And my mum loved watching sport. My dad played sport, but loved watching it. So we grew up in a sort of sporty household. And I remember my mum teaching us, uh, we we basically had to dislike any person who played rugby for any country that wasn't Wales, (laughs) basically. Uh, And I remember we uh, had to kind of chant at the TV, we hate Batty. Actually, at that point, I had no idea who Grant Batty was, but there you go. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess my only memories of that. But my mum and dad were actually both really strong feminists. They also believed in education. They had, you know, good schooling. I mean, state school, but grew up in an environment where education was really important. Mm. And um, they kind of instilled that into me and my sister as well. And how did you get the name Tani? Because actually you were christened Karis, weren't you, which is your daughter's name now? Yeah, um, my sister didn't like the name. And um, when my parents told her there was going to be another baby, she was very excited and they were busy congratulating themselves on what wonderful parents they were. Uh, And apparently when I came home from hospital, she stood next to the crib and went, ugh, it's tiny. (laughs) And then just stood there for a couple of days going, it's tiny, tiny. It became Tani. Uh. And when they tried to get her to call me Karis, she just screamed the house down. So... It was easier for my parents to change my name. And I think they thought at some point they would change it back. And then our daughter's called Karis because out of all the Welsh names I, I liked, um, my husband's English and he struggled to say quite a few of them. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it's not great when your dad can't pronounce your name properly. So, um, 
Yeah, so Karis was probably the most simple Welsh name that we had on our list. And it kind of means sort of beloved child or it comes from Cariad, which is to love. So it's it's quite a sweet name. But I don't associate my name as Karis no. because cause I've never, ever been called it. And when did you realise that you were in any way different at all? Because they brought you up so straightforwardly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I think I always knew because when I was walking, uh, I, 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 I didn't walk very well and then I, I very gradually became paralysed. I knew that people would look at me. You know, people looked at me in the streets, whether I was sort of walking as a very young child or as, um, you know, because in school I used to fall over a lot and the kids were great. They just picked me back up and stick me back on my feet. Um, but yeah, as a young child, knowing people would look differently because I was in a chair or um, people pulling their kids out of my way in the supermarket and saying things like, don't get too close to her, you might catch it. Oh. And so mum used to be great because she'd be like, well, catch what? Sorry, what? Did? <laughs> you know, and so, you know, she was really feisty. I mean, really feisty. Oh. And, um, you know, she'd just say, oh, they're idiots. They're, you know, it's so before we, we had were, you know, like social inclusion or, you know, social model of disability, that's the model I was brought up in where, you know, mum was, you know, if they treat you like that, they're stupid, it's their problem, not yours. Mm. You know, you don't have to change because of my disability. Because I was an annoying child, I probably had to change. But, you know, it's it's not your fault you're disabled. And and certainly growing up, there was, you know, I think some of our, our wider family members, you know, found it quite hard because I was disabled because it was, you know, it, people would look down on the family because of it. You know, so I was so lucky. My parents were really strong to deal with that. And your dad was an architect, but he didn't actually change your house in any way, did he? Or adapt it for you? No, not for years. Uh, years before we had a ramp to the front door. Um, and then he didn't change anything inside. So, um, you know, we didn't have a lift or anything. I used to crawl up and down the stairs. And I think it was because, well, no, it was. He, he later said it was because he didn't want to make it the only place I could live. Because if you have all these, like, massively expensive adaptations around you then actually it's really difficult to move house or to do anything else and you know even now we don't have our kitchen adapted you know I've just got used to cooking at you know a different level and we, we do actually have a lift in the house that we now live in because I'm getting a bit older it's a bit harder to crawl up and down so but we've only had that in the last year it probably made you very fit though from a very young age didn't it well it, it also meant that you know if I wanted to go somewhere that wasn't wheelchair accessible it's like okay I get out and crawl you know, and dragged my chair in. So it, it it kind of opened my life to the things that I wanted to do. So, you know, you know, if I want to go somewhere with my family that's not particularly accessible, it's like, okay, well, you know, I can get out of my chair and I can get around and we might make decisions not to do things because of access. We had a debate recently, am I a really bad tourist because I'm a really bad tourist and I have no patience, you know, and, you know, I remember queuing up to see the Mona Lisa and it's about five seconds right I'm done okay or, or, or is it because a lot of places are you know still relatively inaccessible I, I don't know the answer to that but um yeah dad was really keen that I would have options about where I lived and actually and, and for my level of impairment it's okay to do that if you've got a different level of impairment it's not but but for me um it it was important that I I had choices about where I lived and then you went on a school trip to Lourdes didn't you and the priest offered to dunk you in the miracle water but you didn't want it why oh no because it was cold <laughs> so I mean that was the, that was the main thing so yeah. and that was really funny leading up to that so we grew up as Methodists not Catholics and mum had a phone call from the local church that said would Taddy like to go to Lords?" and my mum said she doesn't like crickets <laughs> 
think I was 10. And they're like, no, not that long, the other one. I was like, oh, right. So, I mean, my mum was always thinking about sport. No, no, it was, it was it was merely because it was kind of March and yeah. there was snow on the ground and it was freezing. And and for me, you know, I, I, I don't believe in a miracle cure, yeah. you know. So, um, so walking would be more convenient for lots of things. And so, you know, if there was an operation that could suddenly fix the, the complete mess the back of my spine is... You know, my muscles haven't worked in my legs for years. It, there is not an injection or something that would happen that would suddenly mean I could go up and walk the way the two of you do. You know, it would be years and years of pain and, you know, damaged bones and, um, you know, physio. And there's better things I could be doing than that. And you went through some really agonising moments when you, you were 13, you had a metal rod mm. inserted in your spine. You had to stay in plaster for six months. What are your memories of that time? Was that the toughest time for you, do you think? Or um, Leading up to it was really tough because there was a lot of pain because my spine was collapsing. And as it was doing that, it was kind of pulling my ribs around and moving my internal organs. And, and that was really painful. You know, in terms of the choice of having the rods, I didn't have any choice because if I didn't, it would have killed me um, eventually or made my life, you know, would have compacted my lungs and made my life incredibly difficult. So having the rod put in, yeah, that hurt quite a lot uh, mm. for a couple of days. But, you know, pain relief is good. And I had great doctors in terms of managing that. Yeah, and the worst bit about the plaster cast, because it went from my chin to my hips, um, and it was on for six months, and they put it on at the end of January and took it off at the end of July. It just smelled. Oh. I mean, it was really horrible. My my sister used to just come and spray it oh. fresh in the wrap. And, and I remember when I had it taken off thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. But I couldn't hold my head up because I'd lost quite a lot of the muscle around my neck. So my head was really wobbly. <laughs> and then I remember going home and um, all the dead skin. Yeah, a lot. Of, oh, that was really... Having about four baths. And yeah, with all the, yeah, but so, you know, it was one of those things. I mean, I think that was quite scary going into that because it was a big operation as a 13-year-old. But again, my doctor was like, if you don't do this, you you know, you won't be able to do much with your life because you won't be able to breathe. Mm. So, you know, um, scary, but had to be done. So how does the courage of that compare to the courage of racing downhill at 45 miles an hour, which to me seems also terrifying, which... Do you think of both as equally brave or do you think of the wheelchair racing in a way as more courageous? I don't think it's courageous. I think it's stupidity or <laughs> exhilarating. Um, but, mm. you, you know, by the time I was kind of racing at a decent level, you know, we were training really hard. You spend a lot of time training on the roads. You don't just suddenly jump in a chair and go downhill at that kind of speed. You sort of build up to it. I think if I did it now, so... Um, we used to have a race through the Tyne Tunnel, which when I was training full-time didn't scare me at all. It was just really cool going downhill very, very fast and jumping over cat size about 30 miles an hour. <laughs> no. And then about four or five years into retirement, I did it again to make up the numbers. Now, that was scary because I just wasn't used to being in my chair and didn't feel in control at all. So I think when it's something you're training for and you're involved in day in, day out, it's not scary because it's just what you do. Mm. Um, and you're in a race, so... If everyone else is going downhill that fast, you have to as well. So, Are you a risk taker, do you think, though? Do you like that adrenaline? Uh, I loved it, yeah. Um, th there is something really, I'm not sure, scary, exhilarating, kind of powerful, whole range of emotions when you do something like that. Yeah, it's great. But no, I don't think I'm a risk taker. I think I weigh up risk. So, um, I mean, I never did any of the sports because when I was competing... You're not really allowed to. Yes. So if I'd 
broken my shoulder doing wheelchair racing, that's kind of okay-ish. But if I'd broken it doing another sport, that would have been... Hang gliding. Yeah, unforgivable. And no, I'm never... No. And bungee... Not, there's a whole bunch of things that I would never do because mm. you just think that's stupid. You know, that's that wasn't meant to be. And I, I don't want to be scared. Um, my daughter did this really huge bungee jump uh, about three years ago and just watching the video made me feel sick mm. it's like why why would you throw yourself off something so in that way I don't I don't need that kind of exhilaration at all so can you remember your first time racing was it what did it feel like when you got onto the track my first race I was really excited uh I'd kind of looked at athletics and thought actually it was a bit boring because you just go around in circles and and I'd watched athletics as a child, but didn't necessarily desperately want to do it. There were lots of other sports that I thought I'd want to do before that. But my first race was quite exciting, and I did it, and it was like, that was really cool. Uh, did and you win? No. <laughs> I can't remember where I came. Uh, I might have won in my, because of a different age group. I might have won my age group, but I didn't win overall. Um, and I remember just thinking, I want to do that again. Oh, can we do it again now? Um <laughs> And, you know, see if I can be better. Uh, and that was, I was 12. And really from there on in, wheelchair racing was was the sport that that I kind of wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to play basketball as well, but was completely useless at it. There was a bit more hope that I was going to be a bit better at wheelchair <laughs> racing. Can you remember getting into the Paralympics team and, and what it was like when you actually made it into so I, the team? So I made my first Paralympic team in 88, um, and I'd just come home. I'd finished my first year at university, got in on Saturday, sort of mid-morning. And my mum said, oh, there's a letter there for you on the kitchen table. And I looked at it and it was there was a logo on the outside that knew it was a team letter. And if you're selected for a team, you get a letter. If you're not selected, you don't get anything. So there was a bit of me that was like, I've got a letter. And then you're thinking, oh, have they changed the rule? And I remember sort of a mum just at the kitchen sink, washing up, and she was clattering about. And she had a back to me, and she didn't look at me. And I opened it, and then I'm, I've still got it. And it just said, dear Tani, congratulations. And just screaming, and mum coming over and hugging me. And, um, you know, she'd been, I think, turning away in, in case it was a letter saying I hadn't made it. Mm. Uh, and giving a big hug. And she's like, we, you know, my dad had gone fishing. And she's like, well, your dad's not going to be in for a bit. But, and yeah, and I remember just being really, really excited. And then thinking, oh, okay, this is quite serious. You know, this is a big step up from where I was before. And did you think you were going to win? What did it feel like the first time you won gold? Oh, uh, it's amazing. So I, I first thing I did, I broke a world record before I won a gold medal at a major championships. That's incredible because you, you know what the world records are and you know your personal best and there's a clock right on the finish line. And it's not quite the same as running because you take a bit longer to slow down. So I remember looking at the clock and just going, and then going, okay, right, just don't, don't be too excited. It was in Australia, in Melbourne. And then it's like, yeah, just just go back and double check. Don't, <laughs> don't kind of go around the track going, yay! Because you look a bit stupid winning, you know, winning a race and being really super, super excited. Uh, <laughs> and go back in and check in. And it was like, oh, yeah, no, I did it. So that, that was an amazing feeling. Is it extraordinary when you hear the national anthem? It's weird. Okay. It's, I find it more emotional listening to other people's national anthems <laughs> because I know what it's interesting done to get there. When it's yours, okay, now, now this sounds really awful, but, you know, there's a long process leading up to the race. You're there at the track a couple of hours, all your foods, but, you know, your, your day is planned out endlessly, even if racing at seven o'clock at night and you warm up and you do the race and then you have to go and cool down. You might have to do a drugs test. 
you then get put in a room waiting for your you know your moment for the medal um and you're lucky you get a bottle of water and a banana or something and you sit and wait and what you really want to do is go and see all your friends and family and your teammates and you're kind of waiting and you go out and it's quite a short ceremony and it is amazing but because i also did multi events you kind of need to get back to the village and eat and sleep because invariably you're racing the next day so it's probably it is emotional, but I get far more emotional now watching Friends because I'm still involved in sport and lucky to have some friends who are doing well. I get far more emotional watching them because you haven't had all the actually quite dull build up to it. You you get the excitement as a spectator. So it is it is wonderful, but it's quite different when you're an athlete to when you're um, you're, you're watching. And do you think um, your disability makes you more determined as, as an athlete? Do you think it's pushed you on to succeed to win all those medals I mean your the number of medals is incredible no I don't think it's my disability I think it's me as a person mm. you're and very very competitive about everything yeah less so now I've stopped competing how did your sister uh, cope growing up with someone so competitive she's not competitive at all she's <laughs> not not interested not interested in in sport <laughs> uh has has quite a lot of different interests no interest in competing I mean I think um husband tried teaching her to play golf and she just didn't care about getting better. <laughs> just literally, genuinely doesn't care. So, so it's probably quite good that, that we're so different. But you're really driven by your competitiveness, do you think? Yeah, well, I was, yeah. Because, um, you know, unless you train really hard and you train really smart, you don't have a chance to get selected and be on the start line. So that was the thing that drove me. I think what I wanted to do, the, the medals are part of it, but I wanted to be the best I could be. And if that had only got me so far, I think... You know that's okay because it was about being the best I could be. And if if you're in really good shape and you do everything you can, then you've got a chance of winning medals. Again, that's really quite complicated. Um, it's not the the medals that drove me; they're the nice bits that come on the other side of all the training, the prep, and everything else that that you do. So, because I didn't want to get to the end of my sports career and think if only, mm. you know, if only I'd trained a bit harder or I'd done this or so. You know, it was kind of living um, my sports career to the max as well because. You can't, you know, my, my race weight was 45 kilos. Uh, you know, I had no body fat. Um, you know, my sports performances started going downhill pretty quickly at 34 because you get to an age where you can't train the way you can when you're 20 and you don't recover the same way. And, you know, so you can't you can't ever think, oh, well, I'll do it next week or I'll do it next year or something. You've, you've got to do it now. And, and that's important. And how much is that competitive streak innate, do you think? Or is it to do with your parents telling you as a child, don't ever let anyone tell you you're second best? Um, oh, nature, nurture. Yeah. don't know. I mean, it's a combi- combination of, of both. I look at my mum and dad and sort of I'm, I'm kind of a combination of the two of them. So there's something which is innate. And then I think then there is, you know, we also, they had the opportunity to encourage me to do things. So, you know, I could go to... You know, I lived in Cardiff, but I could go train in Bridgend. They could afford to take me there. So there's there's lots of things that, you know, are part of that. There were lots of talented kids in the school I went to, but they didn't have parents who could support them in the way that my parents were able to support me. And how did you choose which sports you wanted to do? So we know you didn't like cricket, oh, not skiing. So how how did you work out what were your favourite sports? Um, just trying lots of different things. Really simple. And that came from dad was, you know, just... Dad played cricket, you know, and, and loved it. It was just trying loads of different things. 
and seeing what I liked and what I didn't like. You know, I swam for a bit, didn't really enjoy that. Um, played basketball for a bit. You know, just just did lots and lots of different things. And now kind of where I am now, I've, I've started playing a bit of basketball again, which is so funny because I'm really bad. <laughs> and uh, and it's okay, you know, and, and I, I play on a, like a junior team with a bunch of 14-year-olds and they're all way better than me. <laughs> and it's okay because every week I, I'm getting better. Is it quite violent though? Uh, um, it's measured. Um, Actually, when you play in it, there's a lot of rules around what you can and can't do. But um, in, in training a couple of weeks ago, I actually scored. And I was just so happy. And I did the full <laughs> arms in the air. And I was like, yes! <laughs> what and, did all the 14-year-olds Oh, they came and high-fived me. Um, and uh, one of them was really cute. And he's like, have you ever done any sport? Yeah, a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but probably before your mother was born. Um, <laughs> now they came and high-fived me. And they go, yay, that was brilliant. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. And it was. There was this huge moment of elation. You know, playing in the middle of Middlesbrough on a Friday night at 8 o'clock. That's amazing. Uh, I scored against a bunch of 14-year-old kids. <laughs> but I'm there going, yes! Yeah, that's great. Love it. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the Paralympian, Tani Gray-Thompson. There'll be more from us after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, the independent crossbench peer, Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And your parents were very determined that you should go to a mainstream school, weren't they, when you were young. Why was that? Because special education at the time didn't educate disabled children. Really simple. Uh, so um, because I could walk when I started junior school, I'd started mainstream school. And then our head teacher, Mr. Thomas, didn't tell anyone I'd become a wheelchair user, which he probably should have done. Um, and then, you know, we, we were told I'd have to go to special school. And my parents went to look at it. I went as well. And it 
there was one bit because it was all really accessible. You go, oh, that's really nice. But then my parents started asking about exams. So even though I was 10, they were saying, okay, what, you know, O-levels can she do? And they're like, oh, no, she can't do O-levels. She can do um, CSEs. And I think I could have done four, which would have been um, RE, Art, Home Ec and English language. So they're assuming that all disabled yes. people are yeah. unintelligent. Yeah. So my dad was like, oh, you're not going there. Yeah. Um, and so, again, his education, he he came across Baroness Warnock, Mary Warnock. She'd done a lot of work on educating disabled children. She'd, you know, white and green papers and there were a couple of lines in there that said a disabled child had the right to be educated in the best environment for them. And then my dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales because he could do that, you know, and there's a whole bunch of parents that couldn't have done that. So, you know, I got to mainstream school where, you know, I did 10 O levels, 4 A levels, an S level, went to university, you know. But mm. but there were people who were writing me off at 10. Mm. So I think that had, that had a bigger impact on my life, actually, going to the school and seeing that the most I could have done would be not very much. Um, and then, you know, I had to have psychological assessments and all these different things to get to the school. And it, that was, it was it was interesting. And looking back, it was interesting. But um, I remember... Um, when I was doing my A-levels, having to go and see a specialist careers advisor who was meant to know loads about me as a wheelchair user and him telling me I shouldn't go to university, that I could go to secretarial college and they could teach me to answer the phones. And I was like, don't you just pick up the phone and say yeah. hello? <laughs> and uh, he wasn't massively impressed with me. He reported me to my head teacher. So it's difficult. Yeah, so I'd, oh. I got called into the head teacher's office and he was like, right, Tanya, okay, what happens? All right. You know, he told me not to go to university and... You know, and he was like, oh, "Okay, no, it's it's him, not you." And bizarrely, my first job out of university was answering phones. But anyway, that's <laughs> didn't need any special training. No, but but it's like stuff like that. It was like you were just mm. shutting people. So, I think the reason I feel really strongly is there were so many children who didn't have the parents I did, who who went through that, who had so much more talent, but they never got the opportunity to shine because people just looked at them and went, "Oh, you're disabled. It doesn't matter." And do you think there's still more prejudice against disabled people than there are with racism or sexism? And it, it seems to be forgotten in a way as something that's being discriminated against. It's really complicated um, because there's the intersectionality of, of all that. You know, trains were meant to be step free January the 1st, 2020. Every government has allowed derogations to that. It's now going to be 2070 before trains are step free. I'll be 2070. dead. 2070. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm meant to book a train before I get there. So I can't turn up at a train station four minutes before the train and buy a ticket and go and get on it. You know, a third of the tube station is not accessible. You know, there is still massive discrimination in education. Or, you know, the employment gap is twice the national average. So there's discrimination in that. And um, I had a call, uh, was it last year, I think, from a journalist saying, oh, this is amazing. The European Space Agency are going to send a disabled person into space. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, well great for the person and it will have an impact probably 20 years down the line but I can't get on the northern line yeah so you know so so the discrimination and you know I thought our moment was going to be in the pandemic when it was found out that compulsory do not attempt resuscitation orders were put on thousands and thousands of disabled people purely because they were disabled which said you're not even going to get the right to go into hospital to fight for a ventilator we've just decided if you get COVID you're going to die and there's part of me that understands why that decision was made because 
there weren't ventilators for everyone and they didn't know how to treat it and there's all these things. But it was like they were just writing off thousands of disabled people. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, so, you know, if Stephen Hawking had been around, he would have been on the list of DNR. Yeah. And you go, oh, well, you know, what about the other but stuff no that he should be just mm. because of a disability? No. And and the, the reality is lots of people experience discrimination in this country. And it depends the people around you. It depends where you're brought up. It depends what your protected characteristic is, you know, the fact that we have to have these protected characteristics shows there is discrimination. But but I think a lot of the time for disabled people, it is forgotten because, you know, at a train station the other week, somebody said, oh, I thought, I thought you could get on trains. No, no, I can't. You know, so if you've not come into contact with a disabled person, it's not in the media that much. Mm. So people don't understand the lack of access and the lack of opportunity and the lack of equality that, that is. It. So it, it, it does get forgotten so what are the worst examples you've had personally oh um somebody saying to me you know people like me shouldn't be allowed to have children uh so that's what welsh people you mean disabled yeah that that, was that when you were pregnant yeah that that also um, was rehearsed over quite a lot of time um oh like you know you should travel on the tube when it's quieter because people have got jobs to go to i've got a job uh, actually probably heading to the House of Lords yeah it was actually oh, um, I mean it's just the low level stuff so the big mm. stuff is is easier sometimes to deal with because you know my, my option is not to sue people but but if it's massive discrimination you, you can sue someone but actually it's the low level stuff mm. that is just sometimes day in day out you know being in the shop and someone saying put your purse back in your bag just, yeah, I was just going to throw it on the floor, actually. Mm, yeah. And some the trouble is some people don't mean to be rude and they don't mean to be patronising. They just don't know any better. And then some people do. And I think people still fear being disabled. You know, it's it comes back to the continent stuff. They imagine parts of my life are the worst things they could ever imagine. And sometimes you want to sit down with someone and say, should we just have a chat about the worst things in your life? Because, do you know what? I wouldn't want to be like you. you know, um, so, yes. you know, there's there's some really, I think, interesting. Th- oh, yeah, I mean, it's just loads of stuff. Um, which uh, you kind of forget them, actually, some of them, because they're not worth... You'd have to forget them, don't you? Otherwise, it would just be overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, if I complained every time I experienced discrimination, I'd be complaining a couple of times a week. Mm. You know, whether it's in a restaurant or a shop or just somebody or, you know, it's it can be really exhausting, actually. And then I, I was chatting with some disabled friends last night and we were saying about, do you go into an environment expecting to be treated less favourably? And we were kind of saying, well, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, but... But actually, if you then expect to be treated less favourably, are you then more sensitive to how you're treated? And you might not be being treated less favourably, but you think you are. And, you know, that that's some complicated stuff in there as well. But, but you know, generally, you know, a lot of disabled friends that I've got, you know, experience discrimination on a daily basis. Mm. I probably, it's about a third of my life that I do. You know, I've I've had people book inaccessible meeting rooms. Yes, because to make it difficult for me to get home. Oh, to make it difficult. Oh, oh, deliberately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went to a meeting, and the lift into the hotel wasn't working. And I rang uh, outside saying, "How do I get in?" Because the the platform lift outside is not working. And uh, they said, "Oh, it's broken." So I said, "Oh, right. When when did it break?" It was like six months ago. I went, "Oh, right. Okay. Oh, just a bit surprised they booked the meeting here." And uh, the the guy who's on the phone said, "Oh, yeah, they knew the lift was was not working when they booked the meeting. Yeah, we told them." So it was trying to deny you a voice. Yeah. But I just got out of my chair and crawled up the stairs and turned up at the meeting. They're like, oh, you made it. 
Hi, how are you? Fantastic. Not, not a problem getting in. And also, when you were pregnant, you were told by one of the doctors that you could have an abortion. That that mm. that's that is just extraordinary. It's a sense that you know whether or not you not just having a right to have a child, but the sense that if the child is in any way at all disabled, you wouldn't want to have it. How did you feel about that? Oh, really annoyed. I mean, the assumption was that I'd got mis- I got pregnant mistakenly, and or oh, that's what it felt like, and. Obviously, I'd want to terminate. So there wasn't any conversation about, uh, did you mean to get pregnant? What does being pregnant mean for your condition? It was it basically one of the first points was, do you want to termination? Well, no, I was trying to be pregnant. Um, what did the doctor then say? Is uh, he apologetic? No, no, it, it was just, oh, are you sure? No, no. Uh, and I changed hospitals. I remember I'd gone to the, the appointment on my own and um, I remember coming out and ringing my husband and just going, I'm not having the baby there. And he was like, okay, uh, what do you want to do? And I was like, I'll, I'll go anywhere. And then I'm having a conversation where it's, it's not that easy to change hospitals. It's like, you can. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that. Uh, I, I, it was ignorance. And I also had a conversation with, because my spine is, is a real mess at the back because it's exposed and, and my my scoliosis and everything's in a really strange place. And my right kidney somewhere underneath my armpit somewhere in a really odd position. And everything's in a weird place. And I remember um, also saying to them, okay, uh, and it was the same appointment. You know, I need to think about, you know, childbirth now. So we, we kind of plan for it. And being told, you know, an epidural would be fine. But the trouble is because my spine's this mushy mess, you don't no. know which bit of my spine no. you're sticking into. <clears throat> you know, it could be anywhere on the thoracic sort of vertebra because of it's just this bulbous lump of mess. And um, and this was sort of the funny side of it where um, a, uh, one of the medical teams said, oh, well, you know, we'll stick an epidural needle and you'll be fine. It's like, well, I don't have any stomach muscles. And they said, oh, well, you'll find a way. Like, no, I can't, my, my stomach muscles aren't there. They're not going to come back. And then they said to me, oh, we had that woman who was a wheelchair user the other week and she delivered fine and she was able to push. So now what was her impairment? And they genuinely said to me, she broke her ankle. Oh, my goodness. So it's like, yeah, I'm not having my bit. So I didn't say, I was just like, right. Yeah, so I was really calm, didn't say anything. And that's when I came up around my husband. I am not having my baby there. So, um, yeah, I, I, I went to a teaching hospital. And did you have a cesarean or did you have oh, so, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the hospital I went to, they were brilliant. So they did a, an MRI of my spine, which was brilliant to look at because I'd never seen an MRI. And you could see it was this sort of, squishy mess at the back and then you could see where all my internal organs were and that there's all these bits of spinal uh, cord kind of stream it's it's fascinating I wish I'd actually asked for a copy of it I should have done that Um, and then they looked at my pelvis which is tilted and twisted and they measured it and then basically said you know if the baby's bigger than this it it'll be really difficult for it to come out we didn't know what we're having it to come out naturally and then the anaesthetist said look I've done um an epidural with someone of your level of scoliosis and I've done it with someone of your level of spina bifida but not both and mm. then we all had a very sensible discussion about a cesarean would be safer for all of us mm. and I did a little bit at the beginning go oh I, I want to do natural childbirth <laughs> and then I rang my sister-in-law who was like no you don't <laughs> no you yeah. don't but the, the doctors were brilliant because I was training then and I wanted to come back to training um, straight away and we had lots of discussions about that and about how quickly I could get back training and um she was £7.12 and she came out of the tiniest cesarean scar you've ever seen um, because they were able to plan it. And it was safe for me. It was safe for her. And I got back training because that, that was my job, mm. you know. So they, they, they were absolutely um, 
amazing in the hospital I ended up in. Do you think then the Paralympics changed things in some way? Because it did it did shift people's opinions, didn't it? It it it's done a lot, but it hasn't fixed everything. So it's also created a lot of inspiration porn as well, as people looking at athletes competing and you know, twenty twelve was amazing. I worked on the bid, I worked on games delivery. It was a stunning games. And, and actually, it changed lots around London. So, you know, the South Bank had loads of cobbles relayed and Green Park and King's Cross are now step-free stations. because of, So it's had an impact, but it hasn't changed the world for disabled people. It's just, it, it changed the world for some Paralympians and, and some people were definitely inspired by it. But it's a sports event. It's not a social justice movement. And, you know, I, I've had people stand up at sports conferences and say 2012 changed the world for disabled people. And I didn't do that in a public environment. I took them to one side to tell me, oh, well, I've been told by who? What, you've got a disabled friend, you know? Uh, and it, it's a lovely thing to say, but it can be quite glib when the daily experience of disabled people is daily discrimination. So if somebody stood up and said, 2012, stop misogynistic behaviour, everyone would go, oh, sit down, you're talking rubbish. Mm. But But because we want to believe that, Paralympics change the world for disabled people, then then nobody questions it. But but actually, what it does is it makes it makes life really difficult for a lot of disabled people, and that's not to take away from the fact it was a stunning and brilliant games and amazing, and it it did influence people. But you know, it it can't change everything on its own without legislation and money and funding and lots of other things that come with it. Mm. Now, how wheelchair accessible is the House of Lords? Really good. I mean, I can get to every part of the building. And considering it's really I'm old. I'm quite surprised, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not always. There's like, lots of sweeping staircases and sort of. Yeah. I mean, we've got and we've got staircases where you can't get out at every floor. Okay. For no idea why that is. Um, now I can get everywhere. I mean, not always by the most direct route. Mm. Um, but there was one place when I came here. They asked me what access needs I had, and there was one place. Actually, we've got a cloakroom at the back of our cloakroom where I asked, could they put a ramp in? Because that would save me quite a lot of, I say, walking around the building every day and they're like mm, we're not sure mm, don't know we'll have to look and they said oh we could build a temporary ramp and uh, I came back about a fortnight later and there was a full concrete ramp there and it was like oh wow so I rang up the guy who did it and said oh I thought you said you could only put a temporary you know I was expecting some sort of shoddy wooden thing and he went well it'll only last 50 years that is temporary for the house of lords <laughs> to go I mean that's house of lords humor um no I can, I can get everywhere I mean it's just it's I think people assume because it's an old building yeah. that there is a difference actually if you're a pass holder and you know the back routes. Mm. So even as a guest that comes in, you can get everywhere, but it's it's harder to navigate it is if you're a guest and we've got a team of, you know, the uh, people who help you through the building. But as a pass holder, it's 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 probably the most accessible place I've ever worked. Amazing. And your dad said that you'd always get to the House of Lords. Why do you think that? Do you know, I never asked him. Apparently, he told me when I was twenty one. And I don't remember that at all. And then when I, I got here, he just said, well, I, I knew you were going to do it. Really? Okay. <sighs> um, apparently, he, he'd he been talking to the Lord Lieutenant of, uh, who's in Cardiff, and they'd had a conversation. And Sir Norman had said, oh, I think she's going to be in the House of Lords one day. My dad said, well, I agree with you. Well, really? <laughs> so I, I genuinely do not remember that conversation at all when I was 21. 
What I do remember was I, I did politics at uni. I remember saying to my head of department that I was never going to work in politics because that was for losers. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. And why did you want to join the House of Lords? Uh, because it's a chance to change things. Um, to, you, you have a platform here. So people might not like what you say, but they listen to you in the chamber. And all the way through my childhood and growing up, my dad told me how privileged I was uh, and that I needed to try and do things for other people. So whatever we talked about, whether it's educational, he's like, well, you know, you've been, and yeah, I know dad. <laughs> and and I, I am, I, I've got an opinion on everything, like everything. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say my opinion should be public and on a lot of things it shouldn't be because it's not necessarily well informed. But for me, it was about trying to make sure that disabled children coming through, it's not reliant on having people like my parents. It's reliant on legislation and, and not having to have somebody who's got, who's going to fight for you and do everything they can to get there. It should just be a right. Mm. But you've yeah. spoken out um, quite powerfully against assisted dying, mm. haven't you? Why, does that, why is that so important? What do you worry about with the attempts to change the law? Because I see the way disabled people are treated day in, day out. Mm. And, you know, people think I have a life less worth living. Uh, and I have a very privileged life. You know, and if you think my life is bad, so I've had people come up to me saying, if my life was like yours, I'd kill myself. And you go, right, I was an athlete. I traveled the world. I'm in parliament. Okay. Um, and and so, you know, there's, there's lots of issues around safeguarding and protection. And you see other jurisdictions where they're now using it for, you know, dementia um, and, and anorexia. And, you know, it's a whole range of things that if you're not this perfect specimen, you can end your life. And I, I my mum didn't have a great death at all. She had leukemia. Uh, it, it was pretty traumatic, I think, for her and, and uh, for the family. But that's made me more determined about having the right palliative care and the right support to put around people and not making judgments on, on people's lives. Um, it comes back to the DNARs. If they'll put that during a pandemic on people, if the law changes, they'll use it to get rid of disabled people. And if you've had your benefits removed and your support and all you get is 15 minutes of care every day and you have the choice of eating or going to the bathroom or you just get stuck on plastic incontinence sheets to wet yourself all day, then people are going to decide their life is not worth living. And and I don't think that's right for society. So it's really contentious stuff and it's difficult. I, I definitely don't want people to be in pain, but... I see it as a way of getting rid of disabled mm. people. And I'm fine because I've got a red stripy badge, you know. You know, I've, I've got a lot of protection. There's a huge number of people out there who don't. And, and a colleague of mine said to me, which again, I think is is right, you know, where there's a will, there's a relative. You know. With, That's terrible. Yeah. But, you know, it's, will, will granny be put under pressure because, mm. you know, care bills. And we'll think of the grandchildren, mm. you know. And in, in, in Oregon, uh, in the States, which is a tiny US state, being a burden is the biggest reason people request it um, right. rather than pain. You know, so it's being a burden is, uh, I don't want anyone to feel they're a burden, but um, I worry about how disabled people would fare from it. Mm. And do you think you've brought your sort of fighting spirit that you brought to sport, to politics and campaigning? Is it are there some parallels in a way that that refusal to give up? Oh, sport and politics are really similar. Um there's a lot of nice people in politics, but uh, uh, there's rules of engagement. In athletics, you have rules about what you can can't do on the track. Here, you have rules about what you can and can't say in the chamber and how you say things. And you, there's, you know, a very, very design, uh, defined process of what you go through to get legislation through from 
you know, how you move something to how you table something. So actually, once you learn the rules, life is a lot easier here. Uh, our rule book is the companion to the standing orders, so which doesn't make much sense before you come and then it does when you spend a bit of time here. Um, and then actually, it's really similar. You know, I spend a huge amount of time reading briefing sheets, researching, speaking to people, writing a speech, and you might have three minutes in the chamber to take people with you. In sport, we train twice a day, six days a week, 50 weeks of the year. My career on the track at Paralympics is 19 and a half minutes of my life. Mm. It's a teeny bit, but people, you know, just don't realise how small. So it's really similar. You know, we we um, are working on something recently, uh, positions of trust legislation to make it illegal for a sports coach to be in a sexual relationship with a 16 and 17 year old. It wasn't illegal before. It is now. You know, you kind of figure I've got I've got three minutes mm. to make a speech to take people with me. And I spent about nine months thinking about that. And somebody said to me, oh, you just stood up and spoke. Well, didn't because I've been thinking about nine months about if I said this, what would happen if I said this? You know, so th there's a lot of similarity. And sometimes you can just turn up and make, you know, quite a, a, a short sort of impassioned speech. But you, the, the reality is, is you have all this huge amount of work behind it before you get to that, that position. So what are you proudest of in your life? Uh, there's a couple of races that were really difficult and challenging and I did well. And uh, 100 metres in Athens, I spectacularly screwed up my 800 metre final, uh, which is my strongest event. And then I won the 100, which is my weakest event. So that 100 is quite special. Uh, my family, my daughter, I mean, she's amazing. So she gets stopped in the street, especially if we're together and people are saying to her, are you going to be an Olympian? No one once ever said to me, you're going to be an architect or because mm -hmm. your dad was or a baker because your mum was. And I love it when people talk to her and not me and say things to her like, is she, is she okay? And Karis will say, I have no idea who she is. She's just, <laughs> she's just been following me for a bit. But you don't want to say anything, do you? Um, I, I just love the, the, the person that she is and the fact she still speaks to me as a bonus. And looking back really to the age of five when the stranger came up and told your mother that you she should have had an abortion. What would you want to say to that child then? Probably what I want to say to the person is, no, 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 no. She's not very grown up. Uh, it's but me, very um, satisfying. Uh, very satisfying. Um, this is, it's always really hard to kind of think of something, what you say to your, to, to your young self. But um, yeah, just keep going. Probably what I'd say to myself is pick your battles a bit more. You know, I've, I've not always picked the battles in the right way. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, but, but yeah, keep, keep going. And, um, do what you believe in. Tony Gray-Thompson, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank, thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the Paralympian turned politician, Baroness Tani Gray-Thompson. Series producer is Ben Mitchell. Listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, features insights from our interviews with guests such as Adair Depatan, Davidson and Tom Daly. We'll be back with more Past Imperfect next week. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.